welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Just off the coast of Maine lies anchored the oldest national park east of the Mississippi, a park with an artistic flair and blue blood in its founding. Though Acadia is small, coming in around 35,000 acres, it plays much larger, as they might say in golf. You can explore more than 40 miles of bucolic carriage roads on a bike or hiking, hike to the top of Cadillac Mountain, search tide pools for marine life at low tide, or kayak the waters around Mount Desert Islands. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. Acadia was the very first park I visited. That was decades ago, a young boy growing up in New Jersey on a summer vacation. It's just as amazing now as it was back then. In a minute, I'll be joined by Acadia National Park Superintendent Kevin Schneider to talk about his park, the challenges it faces, and how they're preparing for your visit this summer. Interior Federal Credit Union is the official credit union for the Department of the Interior, which includes the National Park Service. Take them with you wherever you go with digital banking and stay connected. Not a Department of Interior employee? Not a problem. Visit their website at interiorfcu.org to learn how to join. Start this weekend. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It is an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Growing up in New Jersey, I had the good fortune of having parents who liked to travel. My first ever trip to a national park involved a long drive to Southern Maine and Acadia National Park. It was there that I first saw a tide pool with its curious marine life and where I was thrilled by climbing rung after rung up the beehive. At least, I think it was the beehive. I mean, that was a long time ago. I was only about eight or nine years old, maybe 10. Come forward quite a few decades, and I've only been able to visit Acadia on a couple other occasions, unfortunately. Most recently was back in 2019, when I attended a workshop at the Skudik Institute. To say things have changed at Acadia and its main gateway town, Bar Harbor, over the decades would be somewhat of an understatement. Visitation has greatly increased, and that has had some impacts on the park, but it's still an incredibly wonderful place for many reasons. To talk about those reasons and the challenges facing the park, today we're joined by Acadia Superintendent Kevin Schneider. Welcome to The Traveler, Kevin. Thanks, Kurt. Appreciate you having me on here. 
We're happy to. Now, you've had an interesting path to Acadia, Kevin. Uh, you arrived there in January of 2016. Before that assignment, you were Deputy Superintendent of Grand Teton National Park. Before that, you had an acting role as Chief of Natural and Cultural Resources at Yellowstone. You were Superintendent of White Sands National Monument, which, of course, now is a national park. And you were a Management Assistant at Glen Canyon National Recreation Area prior to that. Is it safe to say Acadia presented you with an entirely different set of circumstances than those Western postings did? I mean, I've always viewed Acadia as a somewhat different park, one that appears, whether or not it is, as more manicured or aesthetically pleasing than Western parks, perhaps no doubt due to its background as a backdrop for the Hudson River School of Artists and the vacationing Boston and New York City Blue Buds. You have no official wilderness, but you have Jordan Pond House with its tea house and the popovers and the carriage roads. Quite a different experience than those Western postings, no? Well, I think in many respects, uh, yes, and in other respects, no. And I think that, you know, Acadia is one of the iconic national parks in the United States. And, you know, many people have had these experiences like you did of coming here uh, as a child, and, and they continue to come here into their into their adult life. And it's it's a place that we know can transform people's lives. And it has done that. It has been a place to inspire uh, people for now over 100 years. And so, you know, we, we face many of the same challenges that Western parks face, uh, you know, managing an increasing level of visitation. You know, our visitation increased by about 59% over a 10-year period. And, and that's a challenge other parks in the West face. You know, we're smaller than many of the parks in the West. And so, you know, those visitors are concentrated into, you know, 35,000 or so acres of parkland. Um, and that creates its own challenges as well. But we do have these incredible experiences you can find on the trails, on the carriage roads. Um, there's a level of history here that's present. Um, as you as you mentioned, you know this this sort of design aesthetic um, is very important to Acadia National Park. But you have that in Western parks as well, you know, in in CCC architecture and the history that goes with many of our iconic Western parks um, as well. So you know, I think there's a lot of challenges here in these 35,000 acres, and a lot to keep me busy. I bet, I bet, and it is a very interesting park. I mean, you mentioned it's only 35,000 acres or so. My first couple of visits um, to Acadia, we just kind of stayed on the Bar Harbor side and wasn't even aware of the Scudic Peninsula. And um, when I went back to um, that workshop at the Institute, I had the, what I almost consider a privilege of, of visiting the Scudic Peninsula and staying there. And it's just a beautiful side of Acadia National Park that, you know, I hate to mention it because not too many people go there. Well, Scudic is definitely the quieter part of Acadia. You know, we had uh, incredible uh, new campground that opened uh, in 2015, 2016 timeframe. There's there's new bike paths there. There are trails there. So it's really a, a different experience in some ways than the Mount Desert Island piece of Acadia. But it's equally uh, as compelling. Um, and, and, and then there's also Isle of Ho, which is sort of like our, our wilderness district in many respects. Isle of Ho is an offshore island. You have to take a, a ferry to get out there. There's a small campground, only about five or six sites. It's sort of like Acadia's wilderness district in, in many respects. And there are hiking trails there. So if you haven't been to Isle of Ho, Kirk, you'll have to put that on your radar to, to, to visit. So then you can have been to all three 
uh, major parts of Acadia. Yeah, I really love that. Um, we we did have a, one of our writers um, go up there and write a piece on uh, on the island. And um, when I was looking at going, um, there was a very unique bed and breakfast there. That unfortunately, I guess it's closed. Yeah, there was a lighthouse, I believe, that was operating as a as a B and B. I think it may be a vacation rental now. So there are a couple of you know vacation rentals on the island. It's a very very small community, you know, of of year round residents. Um, and some summer residents. Uh, so, you know, there's there's limited options for for people on Isle of Hope, but that's also what makes it really special and unique too. Yeah, well, I might have to look into that lighthouse if it is a vacation rental. Now, I remember um, Dan Wink, uh, when he was superintendent of Yellowstone, and maybe you know this as well, he told me that the average stay in Yellowstone was, I think, three or three and a half days. What's the average stay at Acadia? Yeah, we have among the longer uh, average lengths of stays among the national parks. And, and we typically say it's about five days. You know, the tr- traditional visitor pattern is, is people pack up the, the family car and drive up here from uh, one of the northeastern states or, or parts of eastern Canada. And, um, and they stay for a, a week or so. And so we do have a, a, a fairly long average length of stay as, as far as parks go. Yeah, interesting. Now, um, crowding has been an issue at Acadia in recent years. You mentioned the, the great increase in visitation over the past decade. Last fall, you ran a pilot program of a reservation system to manage vehicular congestion along parts of the Loop Road into the summit of Cadillac. How did that test go, and are you moving ahead with it uh, full-time this year? Yeah, so as I said earlier, Acadia is a very popular park. We're typically in the you know seventh or eighth most visited national parks across the country, and yet we are really small. And so in terms of visitors per acre, it is it is dense. And that's led to significant amounts of vehicle congestion over the year. And so we we embarked on a transportation planning effort to try to resolve that visitor congestion beginning around 2015. There are significant safety concerns resource protection concerns, and ex- concerns about visitors' experience. And, and so over the, the planning process, um, we ultimately completed the plan and came up with several actions to try to address congestion. And one of those actions is a vehicle reservation system for the most congested places in Acadia. And last fall in October, we did a pilot of that vehicle reservation system for both Cadillac Mountain and for Ocean Drive. And you know, really the purpose of a pilot is learning. And so from the standpoint of learning, I think it was enormously successful. Um, we wanted to be able to pilot this for a, a shorter period of time. You know, it was from October 1st, October 18th, I think, that we ran the pilot last year, so that we could we could really understand what the issues were, so that when we went to implement it for the entirety of the season, we would do it, we would be successful. And, and, um, and so for this coming summer, uh, we're moving forward with the requirement for vehicles to have a, a parking reservation to drive uh, the Cadillac Mountain Road and to park at the summit of Cadillac Mountain. Now, I know back when um, the plan was being discussed, um, along with similar plans in, in other national parks across the country, there, there seemed to be um, some pushback from locals who say, hey, this is my national park, it's in my backyard, I shouldn't have to make a reservation to go visit my national park. 
Um, how is that handled at Acadia? Is, is it still an issue or did the, the locals come to appreciate what you're trying to accomplish? Well, so we're focused right now on Cadillac Mountain, which is just a, a piece of the overall sort of visitation at Acadia. You know, there are many other places you can go in Acadia that don't require a, a vehicle reservation. You can drive Park Loop Road this summer without a vehicle reservation. You can hike nearly any of our trails without needing a reservation. You can access the carriage roads without a reservation. So, you know, I think we've, I think we've done a good job of communicating the, the, the needs and the challenges that we face on Cadillac Mountain. And as an example of that, you know, we have 150 parking spaces at the summit of Cadillac. And on a busy day, we'll have as many as 450 or 500 cars parked at the summit for sunrise. And, and so anyone who lives here, I think, sort of understands that something has to change, you know, that, that this isn't sustainable. And when you have, you know, 500 cars in a 150 car parking lot, you literally have people uh, double parked, you have people parked on the on the resource, you know, on the grass, on the vegetation, you have people blocked literally everywhere. There's not a stone to block them. And, that, you know, that's not the kind of experience we want to be providing, you know, be able to give people more certainty so they can plan ahead and know that, yes, I'm going to find a place to park or, or no, I won't. So I'll try a different experience, you know, try something else is, is important. We've also had to close Cadillac Mountain. You know, we, we close it typically 50 to 80 times a summer because of congestion. And wow. because of overparking, and so and and we're not even uh, operating typically at sunrise. If we were, we'd be closing it every sunrise morning um, when the sun is out. And so the reservation system really allows us to address the safety concerns that result from that, and and the visitor experience concerns. When there are that many cars at the summit of Cadillac, you know, if, if someone has a heart attack on the summit, it would be impossible for a ranger to be able to respond to them with an AED or for an ambulance to get to them in a timely fashion. You know, when um, um, the previous time, I think 2005, I was able to uh, take my wife up to Acadia. Uh, my parents had lived at Cape Cod at the time. And so before we went down to Cape Cod to visit them, we went to uh, uh, Acadia so I could show her that. And we, we took the long way to the summit. Uh, we took the South Cadillac uh, Mountain Trail. And uh, that's definitely a more relaxing, enjoyable, and, and in my view, much more picturesque uh, approach to the summit. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's a wonderful hike. And uh, for folks who... Are, are interested in it. It's a great way to get to the summit. And, you know, things like that won't require a reservation. So you'll still be able to hike up Cadillac without a reservation. You'll be able to bicycle up Cadillac Mountain without a reservation. You can take an e-bike or a conventional bike uh, up Cadillac without a reservation. So there are still other opportunities for people to get up the mountain who may not be able to get a parking reservation. Yeah, with that amount of traffic going up there, whether it's 150 cars or, or 500 cars, as I recall, the, the facilities, um, there weren't a lot of restroom facilities up there. Is that a need that you have to revisit or, or are you managing with what you have there? Well, I think we'll be able to manage with what we have with with the sort of visitor volumes that we're going to have with the reservation system and, and uh, we'll be okay. Good to hear, I'm sure. Now, another source of crowding in recent years has been the, the cruise ships that, that come to Bar Harbor and uh, on a daily basis during the summer, and they release their uh, hundreds or maybe thousands of visitors. And I know in years past, they would all get into a bus and, and go up to the top of Cadillac for the view, or in more recent years, I think there was the restriction on, on smaller vans. And I've been reading that the the town council in Bar Harbor has been 
rethinking the cruise ship um, situation on whether or not cruise ships should come to Bar Harbor. Is there an update you can give me on that? Yeah, so we want to make sure that we are prepared to handle visitors however they get here, whether they get here on a, on a cruise ship, whether they get here on a bus, or whether they get here in their private automobile. With the pandemic, obviously, cruise ship visitation really hasn't been occurring last year, and, it's, and they're not expected to return to Bar Harbor uh, this summer as well uh, due to the pandemic and any kind of great numbers. You know, we may see some of the smaller sort of boutique cruise ships that, that come here, but not the large, um, large, larger ships. And what we really want to focus on is how they come into the park and what our piece of it is. And so as part of that transportation plan that I, that I referenced, we really thought about how do we make sure that we address uh, cruise ship visitation? We worked with the cruise ship industry to sort of understand what their concerns and issues were. And, and from our perspective, one of the challenges is these large motor coaches. And the vast majority of cruise ship passengers come into Acadia, they come in on, on full-size motor coaches. And the challenge for us is that our roads are historic roadways. They were built uh, in the 1920s into the 1940s, um, in some cases by the CCC. And we manage them as historic assets. They're listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and they kind of get to that sort of sense of landscape architecture and design that you talked about earlier, Kurt. And so, you know, Large motor coaches don't fit those roadways. They don't fit the geometry of the roadways. You know, you can't drive, for example, a large motor coach up to the summit of Cadillac Mountain without crossing a double yellow line on essentially a blind curve. And so if you put a bicyclist, a car, and a motor coach on that curve at the same time, there's going to be a serious accident. Uh, motor coaches also can't straddle underneath our historic or, or drive underneath our historic bridges. We have these beautiful stone bridges again, built by John D. Rockefeller Jr. and the CCC. And, and they're built for automobiles of the 1930s, the 1940s, not large motor coaches. And so those motor coaches can't uh, get under those bridges without having to straddle the double yellow line and sort of high center them. And so uh, our transportation plan tries to address those safety concerns by utilizing concessions contracts to transition to smaller sized commercial touring vehicles in the park so that we can still accommodate those cruise ship passengers, but we do it with a smaller size vehicle that can, that can navigate our roadways in a safe manner. And, and that's really a critical strategy. Um, we were prepared to go out with the prospectus, the concessions prospectus for those smaller sized uh, touring vehicles uh, last spring, about a year ago. And um, of course, because the pandemic hit, we, we put that concessions prospectus on hold, just given the uncertainty around the, around the pandemic. And you know now we're, we're we, we want to wait and see what happens with cruise ship visitation and and how cruise ships respond to Bar Harbor um, and when they come back and then we'll update that prospectus and, and get it out on the streets so we can continue with the with the vision that was uh, that was really expressed in the transportation plan. Yeah, yeah, I know across the country at uh, Glacier Bay National Park and Preserve in Alaska. The loss of the cruise ship industry last year was a almost a death blow to the park's budget because a, a lot of their budget came from those cruise ships coming into into the park. Do you have the same situation at, at Acadia, or does the revenues mainly go to the town? Yeah, it's not a factor for us. In fact, um, one of the advantages of going to the concessions contracts is we'll actually be able to gain a franchise fee from all of the uh, commercial visitation that comes into the park as a result of cruise ships. So. That was a, a positive thing for us to be able to, to see a little bit of a sort of return on that commercial commercial business. 
again, our visitation, the vast majority of it is people who come in their private automobile and, and come here um, from the other sort of northeastern states. Cruise ships in the totality of our visitation is a, is a relatively small slice. But it still has a big impact. It's the impact really is, is with the motor coaches, the large scale motor coaches. And when you have, you know, 5,000 people unload off their ship in downtown Bar Harbor, you know, it's, it's a lot of people at once and it's just managing those people so that they have a great experience. And so, you know, you don't have the externalities of congestion and, and just, just trying to accommodate that. Yeah. Are they all going simply to Cadillac or, or are they going elsewhere in the park? You know, it's it's like anything else. There's a there's a diversity of experiences, a diversity of activities for those cruise ship passengers. Some of them book, you know, motor coach trips uh, into the park. Many of those motor coaches, you know, yes, they 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 do want to get up Cadillac. Um, it's an incredible view there, and it really is kind of the signature. Um, but there are other other opportunities and other things that are that are marketed for them. Some cruise ship passengers don't take a a, a shore excursion, and, and they instead walk around downtown Bar Harbor, they, you know, go to the shops and the restaurants. And in some cases, they ride the bus, the Island Explorer, uh, our transit system into the park. And so it really runs the gamut of how they might experience and enjoy the the, the island and Bar Harbor and, and Acadia National Park. We're talking today with uh, Acadia National Park Superintendent Kevin Schneider about that uh, jewel of the national park system off the coast of Maine. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org.
Kevin, you mentioned the Island Explorer right before the break. That's got to be a a godsend to managing visitation in your park and, and particularly vehicle congestion. Yeah, the Island Explorer has um, been around in Acadia since 1999 or so. It is a fare-free transit system um, that runs throughout the park, and it really is crucial um, in helping to address congestion in Acadia. We carry almost 600,000 passengers a year in a normal year on the Island Explorer, and obviously this year and last year are anything but normal. Uh, yeah. But it really plays an important role in getting people around around the park and connecting them to their hotels and in the communities. I think that's one of the things that's really unique about Acadia is that the park is very much a part of the communities and the communities are very much a part of the park. And the Island Explorer reflects that because it it runs from the park to the towns on the island and, and really allows you to patch together um, a visit both to the communities and to the park. Yeah, no, it's, it's wonderful, that's for sure. I'm sure many other parks uh, would love to have something similar. The Great American Outdoors Act. It was passed last year, and it's starting to funnel money into the national park system. And uh, I see Acadia is getting some funding, uh, at least for one project, uh, the replace the maintenance facilities at McFarland Hill headquarters. Um, what can you tell us about that work? Well, first of all, the Great American Outdoors Act is an incredible piece of legislation that's really going to be transformative, I think, in our national parks. Um, much like Mission 66 was, in the 1960s, you know, to prepare for the baby boomers um, to visit parks. Great American Outdoors Act is a huge investment in addressing visitor facilities and curing deferred maintenance throughout America's national parks. And, and we're really excited. I'm proud that Maine's congressional delegation was all uh, supportive and sponsors of the legislation and, and played a critical role in helping to get it across the, across the finish line. So here at Acadia, we have as you can imagine, uh, a number of needs that relate to deferred maintenance. We've got a $66 million uh, deferred maintenance backlog. And so we're in the process now of trying to package together uh, various projects that could compete for funding under Great American Outdoors Act and, and really try to make a difference uh, for our visitors in terms of their experience here and, and what they encounter when they're, when, when they're in the park. We want to make sure that you know, restrooms are in good shape, that they have water and wastewater systems that function and that aren't on the brink of imminent failure. We want to make sure that, that you know, our campgrounds are in good condition so visitors can enjoy, enjoy the park. And so we're, we're sort of packaging our projects together for funding in Great American Outdoors Act. Uh, our maintenance building is, is a project that has been the subject of a lot of discussion over the last couple of years as the legislation was being considered it, it really underlies everything we do here at Acadia. It is, uh, you know, all of our sort of maintenance activities take place out of that building. And yet it's, it was built in the 1960s as um, not to be a maintenance building. And part of it includes a basketball gym for uh, folks that were, that were stationed here at that time. But it's literally, the cinder blocks are literally returning to sand. It's uninsulated, vastly undersized. It's structurally unsound. It was declared structurally unsound in 2011. We're sort of just waiting for a hurricane to come up here and blow the roof off uh, the building. Um, and so that's one of our top priorities because it really gets to the backbone of our infrastructure here at Acadia. And so we've been fortunate that that's been identified earlier before Great American Outdoors Act in the line and construction program for funding as part of the president's request. 
uh, for funding. So it's something that um, is, is really critical to our needs here. Yeah. Now, uh, unfortunately, the, the Great American Outdoors Act is not the, the be-all and end-all. Um, I think it's going to funnel $1.3 billion a year for five years into the park system as a whole. And you could count two or three parks on your hands that could gobble all that up in one fell swoop. Because of the maintenance backlog and because of congressional funding for the Park Service, um, friends groups have really been pressed to um, step up. And you're certainly um, the beneficiary of one of the the greatest uh, friends groups in the country, the Friends of Acadia, who's just done some marvelous work with um, you and your staff and with your predecessors in terms of making ends meet there at Acadia. And I know, um, didn't they just step in uh, a year or so ago to help with the, um, the Bass Head Light acquisition? Yes, you're, you know, you're, you're exactly right, Kurt. And um, Friends of Acadia has been in, instrumental in helping us actually cure deferred maintenance for many years. You know, Friends of Acadia uh, was the first park in the country to establish endowments for, for the park. And, and so we have endowments for our trail system and our carriage road system. Uh, the carriage roads were in a state, such a state of disrepair that they were basically hiking trails uh, back in the 1980s. And Friends of Acadia, that was what really uh, galvanized Friends of Acadia, I think, to sort of start getting involved. And now our carriage roads are in great condition. Um, you know, it's not to say there's not plenty of deferred maintenance on those carriage roads, but sure. you can enjoy a bike ride on all 54 miles of carriage roads in the park and have a fabulous experience. We're actually going to be rebuilding the carriage road around Eagle Lake this summer, so there will be some impacts there, but but that's a positive thing to address address. Um, Sort of the, the some of the underlying infrastructure there. Our trails also are in 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 good shape thanks to Friends of Acadia. I mean, we've been able to address a lot of our deferred maintenance issues thanks to these endowments. It's also allowed us to hire and retain a trail crew and and then maintain those trails to a really high standard. So, for example, again, as you as you mentioned at the beginning of the discussion, Acadia has this historic nature to it. And, and so our trail crew will go back and they'll look at photos, historic photos of a trail in the 1920s to figure out how the trail crossed the stream in the 1920s. And they'll restore it to that condition today, rather than just, you know, putting any old bridge in, they'll, they'll do what was historically appropriate. And I think it's because of the Friends of Acadia Endowment that we have the luxury of being able to work at a higher level and with a staff that we can retain for many years um, who really are craftsmen for those, those trails. So we're very fortunate to have a partner that is invested in in deferred maintenance, but in other projects as well. Friends of Acadia is helping us with initiatives that relate to youth education um, and with initiatives that relate to climate change and making sure that Acadia's resources uh, can be sustained um, in the the face of a changing climate. Yeah, I'd be curious if if your crystal ball is working in terms of looking down the roads. I know a lot of friends groups, uh, cooperating associations, they came about to provide that margin of excellence for a national park as opposed to funding maintenance needs or whatnot. And in recent years, you know, we've seen a lot of friends groups being asked to help out. I mean, Yosemite Conservancy, uh, I think they came up with $20 million to help with the restoration of the Mariposa Grove. And you can just go down the list, uh, whether it's Yellowstone or, or Apostle Islands or whatnot, where maintenance groups are providing what many would say is the responsibility of Congress to fund 
any idea looking down the roads five years or 10 years, will that reliance on the friends groups return to, you know, just the margins of excellence projects or, or will they be expected to help pay for some of the day-to-day needs? Well, I think, I think the, the idea that there's this sort of bright line isn't necessarily true. I mean, I think friends groups get involved in things that are, that are somewhat day-to-day. So for example, Friends of Acadia helps groom the carriage roads in the winter for cross-country skiing. You know, that's an operational type activity. It's done with volunteers, but Friends of Acadia helps to provide funding to keep those volunteer uh, trail groomers going. And, and really important work. At, at, uh, and, and when we have good snow, the cross-country skiing, thanks to that on our carriage roads, is the best in the nation, I'll say. Um, <laughs> okay. And so, uh, and I'm a fan of, of uh, skiing. So I'm, L- I'm Living in the good. Rockies, I might disagree with you, but sure, why not? Well, I'll challenge you to come out here, Kurt, and, um, and, and go for a ski with me when we've got snow. The trick is we don't always have snow, and that can be, winter can be a little bit fickle along the coast here. Um, and, and so, you know, I think that uh, friends groups are, are clearly going to get involved in places where they feel like they can be successful at raising money. You know, donors have to want to fund certain things. And, and we're never going to ask Friends of Acadia, for example, to fund the reconstruction of our maintenance building. That's just not something that donors are going to get excited about in all likelihood. We're probably not going to ask them to fund the rehab uh, of a of a water system or wastewater system. Again, that's not the kind of thing that donors are going to get excited about. And so, you know, I think we need to look at what our needs are. We need to work with our partners, obviously, to understand what is something that they can take and, and sort of sell um, to donors. And and um, but but you know, I think we're we're really fortunate. The Acadia National Park is so far better off because we have our two primary park partners, Scudic Institute and Friends of Acadia, who are playing really important roles in helping to make this park what it is. Yeah, yeah. Last year, of course, uh, the, the COVID uh, situation really impacted parks across the nation. Um, it really affected your seasonal hiring because of the housing situation. What's it looking like this year? Any any idea on whether you'll be able to, to go with your full complement of seasonals or are you going to be working off of last year's blueprint? Yeah, well, the most important thing for us is to make sure that our employees and that our visitors are safe. And, uh, you know, that really is job one. The good news is uh, we have this year uh, now a year of experience of managing a national park in a pandemic. And so I think uh, I think that's really positive. We know a lot more about the disease. We know a lot more about how to run a park during a pandemic. You know, I'm, I'm really um, optimistic that what we're seeing with vaccinations you know, that we're seeing uh, vaccination rates and the supply of vaccines tick up across the country. I think that really bodes well for our nation as a whole and, and for parks um, as well. So, you know, we're going to, of course, require visitors to wear masks when they're indoors. We're going to um, require visitors to wear masks, you know, when they're on an island explorer transit bus, for example. We're going to make sure they're wearing a mask when they're queued up for that bus, you know, when they when they can't be socially distant while they're outside. And so, you know, that's really important, having that flexibility. We're going to run the Island Explorer this this summer. Uh, It may be a little bit different. You know, clearly there may be limitations on the number of people that could be on board the bus at one time. There are probably going to be fewer routes this year just because we're going to have some of those routes with more frequency. Uh, given the limitations on the number of people that could be on on board those buses, but you know I, I'm 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 optimistic for this summer. I think I think we're going to see 
a strong level of visitation. You know, last year, we really saw in the second half of the year, the months of, of August, September, October, visitation really rebound quickly. And so I think, I think that's, that's going to be the case this year as well. You know, it's clear people want to be outside. Being outside is, is perceived as being safer um, and, and is. And so, you know, this is, a, this is a great place for people to come. Does that increased visitation create problems with you um, in terms of your seasonal hiring? I know, you know, talking to some of your colleagues, whether it was Yellowstone or, or Zion, obviously, or, or Crater Lake, that there was just an influx of people. And a lot of them perhaps were newcomers to the national park system and weren't really savvy on how you behave in a national park or what you should do or whatnot. Does that create a problem for you at Acadia? Well, we saw last year, our visitation um, sort of in the off-season months, like April, last April, was actually higher. And it was reflected a lot of, I think, folks who live in the area coming to Acadia. Um, you know, schools were doing remote learning or were canceled. And so a lot of people were coming to the park. Then what we saw in June was dramatically lower visitation during the month of June here at Acadia. And and, and beginning in about July 4th, we started to see the trend reverse. And, and week by week in July, we started to see increasing levels of visitation closer to normal. By, by August, we were basically at almost normal levels of visitation, within a single digit percentage level being off of our, our normal levels. And then by like September and October, we actually had more cars in the park than we do in a normal year because the Island Explorer wasn't running. People didn't have the bus because we weren't, we weren't operating that last year. And so for the, for the whole, for, our, for 2020, we were down about 22% uh, or so in our visitation level. Again, because we really got off to a slower start at the beginning of the year. You know, whether or not we saw a different demographic of visitors, it's hard for us to say we don't have good data on that. We didn't see, you know, the significant level of sort of trash or sort of problems associated with with visitation that maybe other parks did we didn't we didn't really see that occurring here at Acadia fortunately well that's good to hear that's good to hear anything else uh, visitors heading up to Acadia this summer should be aware of I think I think you know I would advise people to make sure they check our website before they come you know and pay attention to what um, both park and state COVID requirements might be and guidelines might be and, and you can find that information on our website. Um, make sure you get your reservations. If you wanna drive up Cadillac Mountain, those reservations will start going on sale uh, about 90 days out. And then another batch will go on sale within two days of the reservation. So that way people who wanna plan ahead can be accommodated and also people who plan uh, at the last minute can be accommodated as well and have a shot at making their reservations. Right, do they run all year long or do they stop at Labor Day? Yeah, so we'll we'll run the reservation system for Cadillac from um, just before Memorial Day all the way until mid-October, which really is when the height of our season is, um, is through that whole period of time. Yeah, it seems that things are just stretching out more and more. And they are. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for making time today. It's good to hear what's going on at Acadia and uh, look forward to catching up down the road to see how um, the system works during a real busy summer. Thanks, Kurt. Pleasure to speak with you as well and, and come see us in person here. I'll do that. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. 
Next week, we'll be heading back west to Capitol Reef National Park in Utah to learn a little bit about the fruta orchards that bear fruits and nuts and which date back more than a century. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast series is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.